This is the Ambition for Aging podcast, episode three. How can we work with communities to build capacity? Looking at community capacity is looking at the assets that are available in a community and how communities can make best use of those. to the third episode of the Ambition for Aging podcast. I'm Kirsty. Each week on this podcast I'm joined by different guests and we discuss a variety of topics relating to ageing and this week is no different. Today we've invited our guests to think about the question how can we work with communities to build capacity? This is the first of two episodes looking deeper empowering communities to change the places they live. We'll look at what already needs to exist in a place to begin with, what support to build capacity looks like, how inequalities existing in place can impact on building community capacity and more. In this week's episode, we're talking to community development workers Yasmin and Julie, both of whom worked with their local communities as part of Ambition for Ageing during our delivery phase to identify, develop, fund and run a huge number of projects, all in the name of reducing social isolation and increasing age friendliness. In the spirit of cooperation, this episode really is a team effort. We've brought in other members of the Ambition for Ageing team, Darren and Sharon, to talk to our local leads in Bolton and Berry to find out about the work they're doing on building capacity within communities. As with most of the interviews featured in this podcast, all of these discussions took place pre-COVID and as a result, the pandemic doesn't feature in the conversations. However, as you'll hear, a lot of what was discussed can shine a light on what needs to be done post-COVID to help not only with recovery, but also with moving forward into the future too. Yasmin Holgoth worked for Bolton CVS, one of the hosts for Ambition for Ageing. As with all the Ambition for Ageing areas, Yasmin's work focused on building age-friendly communities, supporting older people to work out what that means for them and working with residents to allocate small investments to support this. Before they both left for Pastures New, Darren caught up with Yasmin over Skype to chat about working with the local community in Bolton and how you can build capacity alongside the communities themselves. The audio quality is a little lower in this section, but hopefully it's still very listenable. Building community capacities all around maximising the strengths of uh, community assets. So um, this can be residents that live within um, areas that you're working in, um, but it can also be some of the local partner organisations and businesses that you're working with. And it involves giving residents more of a leading role in participation and encouraging residents to actually identify solutions to issues in the areas where they live. So it isn't about, um, I guess, living in a place where everything's done to you. And if you've got an issue, you ask for help and somebody else solves the situation. It's about residents looking at, well, what are the issues in the place where we live and how can we come to the solution that we can be part of creating together? Why do you think it is important for for building community capacity, as, as that's what we're focusing on, that opportunities for funding are more easily accessible? Well, building community capacity enables residents to grow in confidence in raising issues that they might have found in the areas where they live. And by involving residents in raising them issues and coming up with solutions, it might be that we're introducing small changes that are actually having a massive impact within neighbourhoods that um, you might not see as an external body or an external agency or organisation looking at a community. And 
when you're involving residents and building that capacity and confidence within residents in addressing local issues, it actually brings meaningful results to the people that live there because they've been part of identifying that issue and finding a solution. Um, so it isn't being done to them. It's very much they're involved in finding that solution and it's a result for them. It's important to offer a variety of methods for people to find ways to get involved in things such as ambition for ageing and influence change. Because if we just use one method, then we're risking repeating cycles of marginalisation, which might have happened traditionally, where the same people aren't accessing programmes like Ambition for Ageing, and then same people um, are kind of getting missed off the picture. And I guess as, as funders, we need to be flexible on how we invest in communities and take that pressure away from people who are applying for funding, kind of the pressure away from them fitting in our boxes. We need to think, right, how, if we genuinely want to see some innovative change and new approaches, we need to also be using different methods to engage with people and gather them ideas and invest into communities. Because if we're using the same approach, we're probably going to get the same people always coming to us. And I suppose historically it's people with the, the loudest voices that have been able to get involved. So it, it requires, as you say, creativity as funders to, to enable others to, to access it. My next question is about sustainability. So in terms of sustainability, how important is, is building the capacity of individuals and groups, would you say? Building capacity of people within communities needs to be done using like a person-centred approach because we need to understand that some people may quite readily be able to take a leading role within communities to come up with solutions to issues and be quite vocal, like you were saying before, the louder voices might often be heard. But it doesn't mean to say that the smaller voices are the people that aren't confident in speaking out about issues in their area haven't got important things to say but we need to kind of find ways to support them people in finding the voice and once again we need to be flexible and find methods for people to see their strengths but try and avoid that sense of dependency on, as service providers because when we're talking about sustainability we need to think what will happen after uh, initiatives such as Ambition for Aging go into communities and how can we maintain some of the work that we've done and if we build a dependency with residents on us as a service provider we run the risk that when we step away that everything kind of falls down and in Bolton our small investment process is focused heavily on supporting groups to establish their projects and then stepping back away from the projects as service uh, providers and letting them deliver the project day to day with minimal involvement of our staff team. And we've always given projects and groups a point of contact. So if there is anything that they want to chat about, then they don't feel completely on their own because we wouldn't want people to feel like they weren't supported. But then we also don't want people to feel like they can't survive without us there. And we want people to think about solutions themselves to issues that projects might be facing without straight away turning to us and saying, can you solve this? And if there are any issues, and we've got that open door relationship, but we're not constantly with the group because we want them to continue and genuinely be empowered to deliver the projects without us. Excellent. So so that when Ambition for Aging, as you say, has 
has kind of left the stage, they should have been empowered to to know how to navigate some of the systems themselves and maybe pick up some more funding if necessary or do what they need to do to keep keep the, the good work going. What kind of barriers have you faced, particularly when it comes to reaching, engaging with and capacity building more marginalised groups? One of the challenges that we've faced would probably be confidence, like the confidence of residents, because if people don't feel like an asset or feel like they've got something to offer, then they don't generally feel able to influence change and they're not as far coming with their ideas for things that they think need addressing. And to try and overcome this, we looked at each of the neighbourhoods that we were working in and we offered additional support around different things depending on the local demographic and the support needs within them areas. Um, in some places, we do asset-based community development workshops where we'd meet with residents and help them look at actually what are the skills within the local community, what skills have people got that can bring to the table, and we really supported people to see, actually, I've got lots of skills that make me an asset to this neighbourhood. I think traditionally people might identify the word asset as something financial, and when you work in poorer communities, People might not necessarily see themselves as having any assets, but then when you explore who they are and what they've got to offer the community, they've got lots of really strong assets. And it's about pulling that information out of people and helping them see what they've got so that they can build that confidence and really engage in programmes like Ambition for Aging. I think from delivering the Ambition for Aging programme, it's kind of highlighted to us the scale of social isolation and that it's actually much bigger than we kind of perceived it to be. Because many older people who've engaged in the programme and really built capacity within their neighbourhoods themselves and got involved. So some of our volunteers and the people who lead some of the projects we've invested in, when they've engaged with the programme, they've been quite verbally confident and we've kind of perceived that they would be quite socially connected. But then after getting to know these people, they'd speak about how socially isolated they were out of the group settings and out of these kind of projects. So when they go back to their home at night, that they, that they were socially isolated. And I think the programmes really highlighted that for us, that even when we're perceiving certain people as being quite connected, that they aren't necessarily as, as socially connected as we kind of see them. With the programme enabling people to see their strengths, it's kind of built individuals' confidence in taking control of their own lives and giving them a sense of worth, um, which they might have felt like they were they were lacking. Um, and it's empowered them to kind of search the things that they want to engage with. And I think it's really encouraged other organisations to use similar approaches because I think people have seen how well it's worked and thought, actually, why are we not doing that? Why are we not involving service users or client, client groups or just groups of residents of any description in the design of what we're delivering if it's something that the end product is supposed to be benefiting residents. Um, and I think that's a real positive step in the right direction for the future of service delivery. It was really interesting to hear Yasmin talk about those small changes having a big impact. It seems that sometimes we miss out on making changes to a place because it feels like it may be an all or nothing situation. Seeing the work Yasmin and the rest of the Ambition for Ageing local leads have done on working with communities to make small changes and the massive impact these changes have had, 
both to the areas they're working with and also how individuals have grown in confidence as the products have developed, has been really interesting to witness. Yasmin's point about the need to reduce dependency on service providers and supporting people to recognise their own strengths and solutions is really a key point to think about especially looking towards the next few years for the voluntary sector and the impact on the availability of long-term community development funding that the COVID crisis has caused. In the next part of the podcast, we feature a conversation between Julie Bentley, who was the project coordinator for Ambition for Ageing in Berry, working for Groundwork, and Sharon Summers, who has worked as both a development officer and a contracts officer here at Ambition for Ageing. Julie had a long history of community development and as with other local leads, Groundwork support the local volunteers to act as co-investigators and co-designers as they go into communities and find out what strengths a local community has that can be built upon with small investments. Sharon has her own history of working in community development and she brought some of her own experience working with communities to the chat with Julie about understanding how inequalities can impact on building community capacity and how sometimes we can find community spaces in places we don't expect. It's about looking at what individuals and groups can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also looking at community capacity is looking at the assets that are available in a community and how communities can make best use of those. Also working with individuals and finding individuals who want to support the building of community capacity. Right. So it sounds like getting those kind of key people is really crucial. It is, yeah. I think without the key people to do it, you need, even if they're not leading something, if they're involved with it, if they're passionate about it, but it's finding those people who can really see why these community places Mm. are needed, what can be done with them, and how it affects the community. Also, I think it's about an understanding of what a community means to people sure and um, one of the things that i think we've found is a community com- is a different thing in each ward okay. and also a different thing within different groups within each ward and all of those communities are valuable all of those communities are essential to how that area runs right and getting those communities to know each other helps to build the community capacity and I think that's that's essential it's the people that are completely essential to building community capacity but they need to have spaces yeah to be able to develop community capacity so in terms of if we're looking at sort of sustainability how important is building the capacity of individuals and groups to help make things sustainable People themselves are very understanding of things being sustainable. Mm. They're very understanding of not wasting money and things like that. And I think through that, that helps to build the sustainability of an area. Working with a range of different age groups, as Ambition for Aging from people that are over 50, Mm. there's a massive generation of people within that that age range itself and through engaging with people at all the different ages keeps the sustainability going right because it's as you said you know people are living longer aren't they and so so what perhaps someone needs and wants at say 50 51 might be very different for what someone who's 81 91 might need and want 
and it's it's also then looking at sort of the the intergenerational thing of that because mm. exactly that somebody who's 51 may well connect better with somebody who's 45 than they connect with somebody who's 93 sure and i think it's recognizing that but also getting individuals within the community to share their skills with those people who might not quite be 50 or are just in their 50s so that those community skills don't get lost mm. and things are built up for a future. For example, when we when we set up the LGBT forum, they the, the group were very, very adamant that they wanted it to be an intergenerational group because they felt that being a marginalised group, to have a group of over 50s within a marginalised group only isolated them further. Okay. So they wanted it to be intergenerational so that everybody was included from the LGBT community in Bury. The other reason they wanted that was quite simply so it would last longer. Right. Where if they've got all ages involved, it's got the longevity to carry on running. So they'd actually got almost like a natural understanding of how to make their group and what they wanted mm. to do sustainable. Very much so. Yeah. And I think going back to the start of the project in Bury, a lot of the community libraries were closed. Right. Which had a massive impact on on a lot of people. Mm. And I think you know you, you're building community capacities is looking for places where you can almost put a large amount of activities and things going on because that will make that place sustainable. Sure. Whereas if you've got lots of activities, you know, one one in one centre, one in another, one in another, then there's no sustainability for the actual building. And I think that's important to make sure that people know what they're looking at mm. and people know the sorts of places nobody can guarantee that somewhere's not going to close. Sure. But you can give it its best possible chance of not cl not closing. Right. Through understanding whose building it is, how involved in it are they, what can they do to support, and working that way. Because wh when the library's closed, they did areas did lose lots of community groups. So I know that you've kind of sort of alluded to it, but what kind of barriers have you faced especially uh, when it comes to reaching and engaging with and capacity building for the more marginalised groups? I think in, in some cases it's identifying right. um, where the groups are mm. and, and how, recognising that depending on the marginalised group you're working with, you can't make a full assumption <coughs> of, of where people fit, so mm. whether somebody is part of a marginalised group or not. And my experience has been, you know, people don't stand out a mile if you go to a community group mm. that's that's quite inclusive. Mm. It may be that there's somebody in that community group that's not shared something mm. that makes them part of a marginalised group. Sure. I think ident so identifying people is, is the first part. I think through capacity building and having the individuals, you can find that out because mm. people will start to share that information. Okay. But I think actually approaching the marginalised groups, so where there is perhaps an organisation or a distinct group, it's to approach people, build up that trust and relationship mm. with people, because that's essential. That's, if that's not there, then trying to explain to somebody what we're trying to do um, in reducing isolation and things mm. like that doesn't necessarily flow right. for someone. 
and also I think understanding the way different cultures work mm-hmm. um, some cultures will say well you know we, we older people within our culture aren't isolated because we look after them mm. we do this mm. and, and all these different things and they don't recognise it in the same way that other cultures recognise mm. it so it also sounds like that there might be sort of key players within certain communities that might kind of be saying it's not an issue it's not a problem in our community but actually it might well be so so sometimes yeah. it's about getting over yeah. that barrier of say key figures within mm-hmm. communities to kind of to to actually reach yeah. those people who might well be isolated mm-hmm. but there's all those kind of things about well we don't want to kind of say or our perception is that they're not yeah because from our point of view we don't think they are but actually the people on the ground might well be yeah and I think it's understanding as well I think sometimes we we've gone to an an older people's community group we went to an older Asian community group and and they were very much no we're not isolated we don't do this our families do these things for us and and we we don't need that when you talk to their families their families are now recognising that they need that because their families are working so Mm. they can't be there all the time to support them and help so they're recognising that they need it and it's about engaging with those families as well Mm. so that they can pass the understanding through yeah because it almost sounds like there's a bit of a disconnect between the families and the and the older people definitely and there's almost like assumptions perhaps by the older people thinking that this is what our families do and the families are saying our circumstances have changed now yeah, over the years we're, we're not able to do yeah. that anymore we can't do the same as you did for your parents sure. because we're doing these things mm. and that i think that helps bring people together i think one of the other things that i've found is actually encouraging groups to set up in places where they perhaps wouldn't have done before okay so we have a project that runs out of the Green Cafe, mm-hmm. which is a cafe in a park called the Bain Project. Right. And it actually stands for Believe, Achieve, Motivate, Empower. And they're running out of what is predominantly a white British used cafe. Right. And they're running out of that. But what that means is they're engaging within the community. So when they have their launch event and when they have their activities mm. there's now a mix of people going to those because people can see something going on okay. actually in the space that, yeah. that they would usually use Right. so it's kind of about blurring the lines of kind of unsaid borders where mm. people live there those people live there, these people live here mm. and, and actually blurring those and mm. breaking them mm. and did you know mm. and bringing people into those areas mm. that they can they can mm. do things in and i think and it's it, and that's definitely kind of come out of the program isn't it it's about kind of overcoming and sort of challenging that people like me and that kind of links very much into because mm-hmm. um, sometimes defaults in any kind of groups and in any ages can be you you tend to stick with people like me because it's comfortable yeah and it's about when you talk about blurring it's about how the you know the work that you've done within um, Berry and the work of Ambition for Aging is also about giving opportunities for connections and networks mm-hmm. to be made, 
so people kind of in a safe and comfortable way can link in with people who aren't like me. Definitely, definitely. And I think as well it's important to recognise that using the people like me, people need to have that identity and they need to blur. Sure. And I think it's it's important to recognise that that's not people working in silos and working mm. individually. Mm. There is a need for that. And I think that's evident from all our marginalised groups. We have um, a member of the, the LGBT forum who said he was very, very isolated. And now there's the forum. He, he attends the forum and is also now thinking about attending other things, which previously he wouldn't. But he describes the forum as the safe place. Okay. That's that's where he feels safe. Mm. But now he's starting to be able to go to other places because of people he's meeting. So I think it's really important to remember that the marginalised groups and anyone really needs to have their their own like me groups mm. and their own blurred lines groups. Sure. Just in the same way as people have their own hobby groups where yeah. you have like-minded people going fishing or mm. woodworking. It's kind of the same thing mm. and it's getting people to understand. I think it's very much a, a verbal conversation mm. from people who, who get it sure. as such that there isn't a difference between people. Mm but people like certain things mm. and that can be spending time with people like me mm. or it can be spending time with people who like the same hobby as I like mm. or it can be spending time with people who you can find things out about and people you've perhaps not come across before and, and kind of blurring it all up a bit mm. and actually probably finding that a lot of those people are people like me. Exactly. So, the primary aim of Ambition for Ageing programme is to reduce social isolation in older people. Um, how important is building community capacity in achieving this? I think it's, you know, having the people, and I think it's having those key people who understand that social isolation is a thing. They, they know their neighbours, they know their residents, and, and can highlight who is isolated and they can make sure that those people are spoken to. People talk quite a lot about how, you know, how, how isolation comes about and, and how, you know, you don't have the milkman anymore who mm. sees that somebody's curtains are closed. You don't have the postman there mm. all the time. So people can't interact with people in the way they did before. People don't feel as safe in their communities. So I think the more community capacity there is mm. the safer people feel the more people start to notice things and I think it's educating people because you know you can start off with a small group of people who understand it and are, are building the capacity mm. in their area and that can be expanding their own community group or setting up a new community group but then it's about creating a bigger network of people right so you've got four or five community groups working together mm. and then building that so it almost spirals into something where sometimes I've not seen such a body for ages and and lots of people know this and and there's things going on and and I think as well in the community capacity it's looking at what people are doing and, and reminding people that you know if you're out litter picking mm. 
and every Sunday you go litter picking and, and somebody across the street says good morning to you. Yeah. But then suddenly that person's not there. Sure. It's checking in and mm. people are starting to recognise that. And I think the community capacity lets that happen because people feel like they're part of a community. Sure, and they're looking out for each other. And they look out for each other. Hearing Julie talk about how when you look at a community from within, you get different results and solutions than looking at it from outside is so important. And to hear her push that point about how the definition of listening to a community must be all perspectives, not just those that fit into our boxes. It links in with the thread running through both conversations around including all people who can make a contribution, not only from an accessibility and inclusivity perspective, but also working with local organisations, local businesses as part of the community to ensure that what is designed and delivered truly meets the needs to the people who live there. Hearing Yasmin, Julie and Sharon speak about how people can do great things but their own confidence can be a barrier is a point I think I'll take away from these discussions and how building confidence is as complex as people are. People's lives and experiences are part of it how much support is given is another part and the ability to gain confidence through practice is critical too. I found Julie and Sharon's discussion about the types of community spaces being used particularly interesting and it connects in with this wider conversation about the need for safe spaces for marginalised groups. The idea that we can have some places where people can feel safe amongst people similar to themselves but also blur the lines of other spaces where people can meet others who they may traditionally not spend time with such as running a cafe for one group in a space traditionally used by another group opening up those opportunities for people to learn about each other and those they perceive to be different from them without the pressure of entering a space that may not feel like it's for you. In our next episode, we'll be talking to Sophie Yarker from the University of Manchester, who has carried out research on the importance of these kind of spaces, as well as how we can use places and spaces in our communities to help them survive and thrive. And we'll also feature a conversation between Sharon, who you heard earlier, and GMCVO researcher Suzanne Matiki, who discuss what happens when these spaces are not available in local communities. Ambition for Aging is a Greater Manchester-wide cross-sector partnership aimed at creating more age-friendly places and empowering people to live fulfilling lives as they age. Ambition for Aging is part of Aging Better, a programme set up by the National Lottery Community Fund, the largest funder of community activity in the UK. Aging Better aims to develop creative ways for older people to be actively involved in their local communities, helping to combat social isolation and loneliness. Ambition for Aging is led by Greater Manchester Centre for Voluntary Organisation, the voluntary, community and social enterprise sector support and development organisation covering the Greater Manchester City region. The theme tune for this podcast is Air by Ilya Trivanov and any indents this season are taken from his track Tide. Both are used under a Creative Commons licence from his album Fugue. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about Ambition for Aging and the work we do, visit ambitionforaging.org.uk.